Hello and welcome. Today we're looking at a difficult question about why is there violence in the Old Testament and why does a loving God sometimes seem to command that violence? Really tricky question and this uh, video may uh, pose more questions to you than answers but I'm going to make an attempt to look at that topic. First of all, it's just really important to note that there are many different types of violence that's found in the Old Testament writings and a list will, will come up on the screen so you can take note of those and, and look at the different types um, of violence. It's also important right at the start just to acknowledge that any study of violence should not become dispassionate. Violence is horrific, violence is complex, violence is difficult. And so let's just pray as we start our study today. God, as we think about this really complex issue, would you help us? Amen. Well, it's important to note that violence really matters and it matters to God and it should matter to, to us. It has a profound impact upon us as humans, our creation around us uh, and everything about who we are. It's been uh, backed up in, in myths over time, it's been used as um, a form of communication and violence is deeply complex. One person's terrorist is another person's freedom fighter. As we come to the Bible, there are sort of five different uh, forms of violence. We could categorise them into five sort of types. One would be that violence is um, described in the Bible. Violence is implored. Violence sometimes happens against animals and objects. Violence comes as divine judgment and violence is sometimes commanded. And out of those different five categories, probably the most troubling or the most difficult for us today is number five. And so before we kind of dive into that, we're just going to capture a few really important points along the way. Firstly, the fact that the Bible is actually not silent on violence is really, really important. Beisel, a survivor of the Holocaust, said this, I can tolerate the memory of silence, but not the silence of memory. The hashtag MeToo movement would say silence is complicity. Silence is dangerous, and it's important that the Bible is not silent about violence. Societies in the ancient Near East were far more violent than our own back at the time period we're, we're looking at today in the Old Testament. And so if the Bible uh, didn't mention violence, it would uh, probably find itself being criticised of being implausible and, and incredible as a text. It would also possibly be uh, argued that the Bible actually would be inhumane if it didn't include violence in it. The violent texts in the Bible indeed can be significant pastorally to us too. Uh, there's a lady called Denise Ackerman and she's been uh, reading the rape of Tamar with women suffering the pandemic of AIDS and HIV in Africa. Listen to what she has to say. I suggest that the ancient language of lament offers a vehicle for expressing the raw emotions arising from situations such as Tamar's. The language or lament also offers the body of Christ the opportunity to say, 
We are suffering. We stand in solidarity with all who suffer. We lament while we believe that there is hope for all in the good news. There are many people who found their own story dignified and helped by the knowledge that the Bible includes stories of difficulty and violence. Secondly, it's really important for us to note that whilst violence is being described in our text, in many occasions it's not being endorsed. For example, the story of Samson that we get in Judges chapter 13 onwards is, uh, if you think back to Sunday school days, sometimes Samson's presented as like this great uh, hero, that actually when we read the text carefully, we see that there's lots of uh, notes within it to suggest that what Samson does and how Samson behaves is not good. Several times it tells us that Samson disobeys God. He doesn't listen to God. He has sexual dalliances. He doesn't follow the command at the time, an eye for an eye. Instead, his violence goes far beyond uh, that. As we read that text carefully, we discover this as things that we learn through and from Samson, but his behaviour is not being endorsed. Another deeply, deeply horrific and troubling text for us comes in Judges 19. It's an account of the gang rape and murder of a concubine. It's deeply misogynistic, many would cry. Why, why is this text in our Bibles? It's really important for us to note here again that the violence is not being endorsed. How the character is being treated in the story is not the same as how the character is being treated by the narrator. Throughout the book of Judges, there's a cry that Israel desperately needs a king in charge. And to prove this, the narrator tells a number of stories, giving witness to the chaos that's happening at the time in the land, that people are out of control, that everyone's just doing what they want. As a climax to all those stories, we have this awful account of what happens to this concubine. She's handed over to the men to do whatever was right in their eyes. This story stresses the point that they really couldn't lead themselves. They really were in chaos and needed a king to come and rule. The whole event from this story ends up in a civil war. Listen to what Helen Painter says about this. This story is a supreme example of why Israel needs good, godly governance. Our narrator gives us this example of rape and murder of a nameless concubine. This should surprise us on a number of levels. First, because she is female. It might have been expected that the supreme example would be one of violence against a man, probably a highborn man or priest. Second, because she is a nobody. This is not the story of a princess or the daughter of a priest. She does not have the status of wife. This woman has no self-determination. She does not even have power over her own body. Yet her appalling end is chosen as the prime demonstration of the lawlessness of the day. Her death matters. The violence in this text should shock us and appall us. The narrator intends that 
but it should not cause us to doubt the integrity or indeed the goodness of God, quite the reverse. This is one of the instances in the Old Testament where God's concern for the weak is demonstrated in the selection of the story by the narrator God appointed. Thirdly, we need to take note that when we come to the Old Testament, we do need to read the text before us really carefully. We need to understand the genre that we're reading. There's loads of allegory and idioms throughout the Old Testament, and we need to be uh, humble and prepared to do the hard work of looking at texts. Uh, if you were walking down the street and you saw a child running to their parent and you overheard them saying, we slaughtered them today, you'd probably immediately assume, oh, they're back from a hockey match, a rugby match, football match, and they've beaten the other team. You'd know what they were saying. We have to do the hard work of working out what was being said and understood as much as we can at the time, and then think carefully about what's happening in the text. A great example of this is how we read Psalm 137, which talks about the dashing of little children. Listen to what Kunt Heim says about this psalm. The entire psalm is constructed on a specific kind of metaphor called personification. Jerusalem and Babylon are treated as if they are female human beings with emotions and other human characteristics. Arising from this, daughter Babylon is not a young vulnerable female with small children, but the symbol of a destructive and brutal army. Consequently, the little ones to be killed are not innocent infants, rather the children of the personified army represent adult soldiers, the very people who taunt, threaten and humiliate the poet and his or her compatriots in the earlier verse of the psalm. When we understand that, the violence being expressed in this psalm actually comes across quite differently and is certainly less abhorrent than we might have immediately thought. So we do need to do all the hard work of how we interpret the different texts before us. Fourthly, it's really important that we read the texts of violence in context of the whole of the Bible. It's really interesting to note how different Genesis 1 and 2 are to, say, the Babylonian creation uh, myths of the time, which basically treat humans as the sort of slaves of God, the necessity to carry on hard work. The creation story you find in Genesis 1 and 2 is one of shalom, of peace, of people walking side by side with God, their creator, in perfect harmony. And our Bible ends in Revelation, doesn't it, with that amazing story of a city where murderers are no more, where the tree of life becomes for the healing of the nations, where there's no more curse and no more tears, a place of peace. What are we going to do with those really, really tricky bits of the Bible? I'm talking about texts like 1 Samuel 15, where it says this, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them, put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. What do we do with those kind of texts? 
Well, I'd like to suggest that there's been sort of five approaches, main approaches over the years to these type of texts. The first one is what might be called the Marcion approach. Marcion was back in the second century and his approach was basically, let's just get rid of the Old Testament completely and um, do away with it. And it's a really tempting approach because um, in some ways that would just uh, make it easier, but actually it's a really complex and difficult approach and one that I don't think really works. For example, Jesus himself quotes more from Deuteronomy than any other book in the Bible. Jesus himself relied and uh, thought that the Old Testament was the word of God. Thousands of years of Christian tradition claims that we have a whole canon of scripture, and so we can't just do away with parts of it as we please. There's also a major problem if we do away with the Old Testament. Have a listen to these two verses. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now listen to this verse. The Lord, the Lord a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for a thousand generations. It's interesting to note that the first passage I read actually came from the New Testament and the second passage from the Old Testament. It doesn't work. The Marcion approach doesn't work. If you're going to get rid of that much of the Old Testament, you're going to have to get rid of quite a lot of the New Testament too. Second way of dealing with these difficult tests is more of a liberal viewpoint. Take the likes of someone like Eric Seibert, very scholarly work, but essentially is sort of saying that actually elements of the text are human and not divine. For me, that's difficult because I believe the whole of scripture has been inspired by the divine, although human people wrote it. But in his approach, he would say, well, we can get rid of bits of it because it's just human writing. So we can just scrap some of those difficult bits. In doing so, he also seems to kind of uh, make the point that a loving God um, cannot also be wrathful. And I'm not sure that the two things are mutually exclusive. Say, for example, um, if my kids are harmed by someone, then they're going to feel my wrath as a parent. I'm going to be mad about it. And I'm mad about it because I love my kids. But if my kids, for example, do something wrong and they harm someone else, then actually my kids are going to feel my wrath against them. I'm going to be wanting to train them and teach them that that behaviour is totally unacceptable, that it's wrong. Wrath and love are not necessarily mutually exclusive. And this second approach seems to want to put them in separate boxes. Therefore, for me, it doesn't quite work as an approach to the difficult texts. The third approach um, to dealing with these difficult texts, I think, does have some merit. And it comes from someone like Origen writing in the third century, where basically he stresses the allegory and the metaphors that are found in the text. That we need to read the text incredibly carefully and really understand what's going on. 
For example, in, in the book of Joshua, there's lots of claims of we totally destroyed them. And then we find out they didn't actually totally destroy them. Um, there's exaggeration going on. There's different things happening in the text. And actually, a lot of it is there as metaphor and allegory. So there is merit to this approach. And we need to be careful when we read each individual text. But I think there is a, a case as well to say that some of it is historicity, that some of it is uh, stuff that happened and that even if one person got killed in an attack, well, actually that's still a violent act that I'm, that I'm unhappy with. So there's, there's more to just this approach that I think we need to take to the Bible. A fourth approach is to see some of the conquests as a symbolic act of God recreating things and bringing order out of a place of chaos, re-establishing a new way forward. And this is an interesting approach to read them as symbolic and there is merit in this and certainly lots of helpful things that can be drawn. This uh, field of kind of scholarship is growing at the moment and I think does bring helpful things to our reading of the text. Listen to this from Helen Painter. Whenever we see a pattern of sevens in the Old Testament, we should assume that the author wants to remind us of the creation event. Such a pattern is seen in the description of the fall of Jericho in Joshua 6, just as in Genesis 1 account shows creation taking place in six days with a climatic seventh day. So the account of the conquest of Jericho has six days of walking around the city once before the seventh day when the people walk around it seven times. The horns are blown and the city falls. This is a strong hint that the author is showing us that the conquest of Jericho is a new creational event. Like the third approach and this approach, there's some great merit in them and definitely things that I would want to draw upon in my reading of scripture and understanding it. But at the end of the day, there's still uh, someone that gets killed sometimes in the text. I'm not sure the people at the time understood it as a symbolic act necessarily. And so therefore, I think there's other questions still to be asked. The final approach is to take a more literalist reading of the text to say that, yes, God did actually command violence against certain people groups. He commanded it for a short period in history and for a very specific reason. And therefore, this approach wants us to look very carefully at what the purpose is in the text. So if we're going to read the text a little bit more literally, we need to look at what are we actually looking at? There's actually only three cases in scripture where God seems to be commanding war. All the other cases of war are much more wrapped around uh, self-defense and other things that are going on that are complex. So the three cases, there's one in Joshua chapter 6 and 7, one in Joshua 11, and one in 1 Samuel 15. Each of these are quite different uh, situations, and so we have to look at them quite carefully when we're reading them to understand what's going on. The Amalekites and Canaanites had some really uh, evil practices. Uh, for example, the god Molech that was worshipped, in this case by the Canaanites, they would have a huge statue of Molech's hands and into the hands they would place their own children and they would roll down the hands into a fiery furnace that would burn them to death. They practiced child sacrifice and all kinds of evil. 
the getting rid of them was to ensure that the people of God were not corrupted by their practices, that there was a nation preserved in worshipping God and seeking to follow God's ways, a nation that eventually would bless all other nations on the earth, a nation that would host and welcome the Messiah. This is complex because it comes into sort of theories of the greater good and we have different philosophical viewpoints that we have to sort of weigh up on these things. I suppose one of the big questions is, is it always wrong to kill a child? And that's immensely difficult. There's a Jewish uh, theologian and philosopher who, who asked the question, would I kill a baby Adolf Hitler, if I knew what he would do, what he would grow up to be, if I had the chance to kill him when he was a baby, would I? It's a deeply complex one. Of course, in some ways, we just cannot answer that question because we never have the foreknowledge of things. And as Christians, we have to trust ourselves into God's sovereign hands. We cannot know. And we have to trust that the God, uh, our God, who was at work in those Old Testament times, did know what he was doing. That it was in great foreknowledge and deep understanding that in these few very specific and limited cases, he did command the killing to ensure that evil practices were put to death once and for all, to preserve a nation, to bless the entire earth. I think the book of Joshua is a really interesting one. In the story, Joshua meets the angel of the Lord at one point near the beginning, and uh, he asks him, are you for us or for our enemies? And the angel of the Lord says, neither. It's an interesting moment where you sort of feel the ambivalence of God towards the battle, towards the warfare. It's very clear as you read the text, God's utter displeasure in war. You have this sense in which David cannot build the temple because he's been involved in battle and bloodshed. Therefore, that task falls to Solomon. God's ultimate intention is never war. It seems to always be, in these three cases, the utter last resort. Something that saddens and displeases him. And so we have to read the whole of the book of Joshua in the light of that encounter right at the beginning with that angel of the Lord. It's really interesting as well how Joshua does go into battle at the start. Um, it's crazy, really. They, they circumcise the men. Um, and they march around the city walls. They go in utter uh, weakness. And it wasn't like the people in the city just sat there waiting to be captured. There was time for people to escape. There was time for people to make other plans. And no doubt, and we know, some did. It's also important for us to note that Israel is to gain nothing from its conquests. They're not to take any possessions, any plunder. The warfare that does happen is just so strikingly different from other warfare that's, that's described in time. In fact, our sort of ethics of war today go back to the ancient Jewish heritage and practice. There were rules in the scripture about how war should happen. And that's really significant too. 
it's not something to be done ever lightly, never something to just go for. It's always the very last result and it always causes displeasure. When looking at these most troubling texts, Philip Jensen writes this. The key contextual issue is whether this extreme measure was the only realistic possibility of creating a society and culture that held fast to the true God. From a larger canonical perspective, what we have here is a tragic necessity to choose the lesser of two evils. He goes on to say that, of course, someone who sets little value on the faith of Israel will not judge such a policy to be defensible. But if the larger purpose is the salvation of the world, then perhaps there was no other alternative. The break from those evil people around was needed to protect the fragile Israel and keep them as the steadfast people for God. So how to summarise? I'm going to put up a couple of resources at the end of this talk and I really encourage you to get hold of them if this is a topic that really exercises you. Do get hold of them, have a read and, and keep exploring. There's a term in the Old Testament known as harem. It's, it's a kind of description of when things are called to be utterly destroyed. And uh, as we've noticed, there's just sort of three definite occasions within scripture where God seems to command that harem, or what's sometimes known as the ban, that going out and completely destroying. It seems to be that those are very uh, limited to a certain point in history. And it seems to me that in each of those cases, it is about the preservation of his people, that his people will not be corrupted or tainted or thwarted from being that all God wants them to be in order that they might then be a blessing to all other nations. These texts certainly cannot be used to justify any future wars. We can only understand them in the sense that we fling our trust in a God that definitely knew and foreknew what was going on. It's often the case in them that the whole people groups weren't actually utterly destroyed as well. And we have to look at the different chances God provides and allows for, um, for people to escape, for people to make peace, for people to change their minds. We learn over the whole reading of the Old Testament as we read it. And if you read big chunks of it, you just get the sense of how patient God is, how the sense of war is always utterly the last resort and something that God is very ambivalent about. I hope this has helped just a little. Um, there's definitely so much more that could be said, um, but I bless you as you continue to wrestle uh, with this difficult question.